0: We're going to be going to the book of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll cover verses 31 through 49. Before we begin, though, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love you so much, and I thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day you've given us and this good weather. Uh, We thank you for this meeting today, and we ask that you would be with us. I, I pray that you would lead me. To be able to relate this sermon in an easy to understand way to each and every person in here, including the children. And that you'd be glorified and that we would learn something or else understand something better than we did before. That's my prayer. That's what Sabbath is all about. So we we glorify you, Father, and we lift up your Son. It's through him we pray to you, Holy Father. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 49. I'm going to title this sermon, The Statue is Crushed by the Stone. Just by way of review from last week's sermon, if you recall we discussed last Sabbath about King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams or dream that kept reoccurring, the dream that troubled him. And we talked about how there was no wise man in Babylonia that could tell the king his dream and the interpretation. If you remember, not only did the king want the interpretation to be told to him, but he also wanted the dream to be told to him first just to make sure nobody came up and gave him a false interpretation. Very, very intelligent, smart on King Nebuchadnezzar's part. I imagine he was an extremely intelligent man, probably had a really high IQ uh, to be king of Babylon. Didn't make him a righteous man, but he was very, very smart in that regard. And we also saw how that Daniel and his three friends went and prayed to Yahweh for mercy. And you know, as I was going back over that, I noticed how that they prayed together. They had corporate prayer. That's not to say the individual prayer is wrong. I think we should pray individually. But boy, there's something about it when you can get two or three or more gathered together in agreement in His name to pray about any one thing. Look at Daniel and his three friends. Four of them were praying on the same direction You see how Yahweh jumped in that situation and took care of Daniel and his friends? And the rest of the wise men in Babylon didn't get killed by the king because of what Daniel, the Hebrew, the man of Yahweh, did. Praise Yahweh for that mercy that he showed to Daniel. And this week we're going to delve into the actual dream that the king had and its interpretation. We're going to start off in verses 31 through 33. This is Daniel. He's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to tell him, begin to tell him about the dream that he had. 31. My king, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. So the first thing to speak of here in this text is the colossal statue appearing in the king's dream. This slide up on the screen is an actual photograph taken by Daniel. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> this is possibly what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream right here. Okay, They didn't have HD photography back then, did they? So, <laughs> praise Yahweh. This, this is possibly what Nebuchadnezzar may have seen in his dream. And Daniel begins to, to talk about this statue. He says that Nebuchadnezzar, the statue you saw in your dream, it was a very tall statue and it was very dazzling, this translation says. It was somewhat terrifying as well. In other words, it was shocking to see a statue that big in your dream. If you'll notice, the picture on the screen will cover the parts and the materials of the statue. The text says the head was made of pure gold. And next comes the chest and the arms that were made of silver. and Then you have the stomach and the thighs that were made of bronze. The legs of iron and then the feet were a mixture. They were mixed with iron and also fired clay. And we're going to see that each of these parts on the, the statue, the colossal statue, the image of the man, represented a kingdom in and of itself. Each particular material had value and also had strength to some degree and to some regard. Verses thirty four through thirty five, Daniel goes on and says, As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed him. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So as Nebuchadnezzar watched this statue, a stone, the Bible tells us, broke off without a hand touching it, without the aid of a hand. I think that's significant. In other words, there was no human involved in the stone breaking off. Now it's odd here that Daniel simply speaks of this stone breaking off without really mentioning where or what it broke off of. Daniel 2, verse 45 helps us out, though, here. That's a text we'll get more into in a moment. And it's more specific concerning the breaking off of the stone. It states this Daniel 2 45, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. So there was a mountain in addition to the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar must have seen a mountain and a stone break off from the mountain without the aid of a hand. And next we read of this stone striking the colossal statue on the feet of the statue, the feet which were made of the the iron and the fired clay. And it crushed the feet. And as we read the text, it appears that as the stone crushed the feet of the statue, the entire statue began to fall and was shattered into pieces. Verse 35 tells us that it was shattered so much that it was like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The chaff in Scripture is the refuse of specifically the wheat harvest. When they would go and collect wheat, they would bring it to a threshing floor and the chaff would be driven away by the wind as the wheat was thrown into the air. What would be left over would be the wheat and the chaff would be blown away. Psalm chapter 1 talks about the ungodly. It depicts the ungodly like chaff. It mentions the blessed man, the happy man that delights in the Torah of Yahweh. But it says that the ungodly are not so. But they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. And so Daniel says, when this statue fell because the feet had been crushed by the stone, the pieces were driven away by the wind like chaff from the summer threshing floors. They were no more to be remembered, no more to be regarded. Finally in the dream... The stone that struck the statue becomes a great mountain itself. It comes off of a mountain, but then it becomes a great mountain itself, and it fills the whole earth, the text tells us. Verses 36 through 38. Daniel says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the air, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar's face when Daniel got through telling him just the dream before he even got into the interpretation. Think about it. The king had not told anybody about that dream. And Daniel comes up to him and he says, here's your dream. And in detail, he describes for him even intricate, minute details about the dream that the king had. And I can picture the job of Nebuchadnezzar maybe dropping thinking, what in the world is going on? How do you know? I've not told you. Something spiritual is happening here. Remember last week, the wise men said, that power, that kind of power is not with mortal men. That's something for the gods. And in their mind, the gods was the many gods of, of the Babylonians. So I think that Nebuchadnezzar was extremely fascinated by what Daniel was doing. Daniel begins to interpret the dream by pointing first to Nebuchadnezzar. He points first to Nebuchadnezzar and in verse 36 he says, This was the dream and now we will tell the king its interpretation. Uh, Notice as somewhat of a side note here, Daniel uses a plural pronoun to describe himself. And this may be reckoned to the royal we where that sometimes in royalty, plural pronouns are used, but only singular individuals do the action. Daniel says, we will interpret the dream, but then Daniel goes on and interprets it by himself. That's the royal we in Scripture. He goes on to give Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty king. Daniel calls him a king of kings. We should be familiar with that title. That's a title that's given to Yeshua the Messiah in another sense in the book of Revelation. But that's not a title that only belongs to him. That can belong to even, as we see here, a heathen king. And what it means is is that there's a lot of kings in the earth, but Nebuchadnezzar was like a king over those kings. He was a greater king than the majority of the kings of the earth at that time. Notice Daniel directs Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, though, back to the God of heaven. He said, it's the God of heaven. It's Yahweh that gave you your sovereignty and your power and your strength and your glory. Remember last week we learned that it's Yahweh that sets kings up and makes kings fall. It's Yahweh that does all these things because wisdom and power belong to Him. Daniel then speaks of how the king rules over the people and the animals and he tells him that he's the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And so we're going to point to Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold here on the screen. Verse 39. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. King Nebuchadnezzar represents the head of gold and now we are told that the next two parts of the statue represent two other kingdoms. The chest and the arms of the statue were made of silver, so this kingdom is said to be inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's, I don't know that inferior is the best translation of that Hebrew word because even though the value of the material decreases from gold to silver, the strength of the material, and not only the material but the materials, the strength of those materials increases as we get down the statute. We go from gold to silver, which is less in value, to bronze, which is less in value, to iron, which is less in value. But each time we go down, though, the material gets stronger until we get to the feet that are a mixture. But when we read the book of Daniel, we see that this kingdom, the second kingdom, was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians or the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, this is not just me making up something. I don't like it when I hear so-called prophecy experts on television read a portion in the Scriptures and say, now this right here, is talking about, and then they go off and name some name. You know, this is referring to Ronald Reagan right here. And that bothers me because I don't see how they know that. And usually what happens is when they say stuff like that, what they claim is going to happen doesn't end up taking place. And then people kind of forget about it. And then they mosey on and still collect money and continue their so-called ministry. They blow my mind when they get on there and say, well, you know, this represents this and that represents that. And I'm very, very uh, away from doing that. I'm not really a prophecy man when it comes to the Bible. I don't. Not that there's anything wrong with prophecy. Some people have a good understanding of it. And I'm studying it through here through the book of Daniel, but I'm not one to uh, delve into it in depth because I try to only speak the things that I've been assured of. And if I'm not assured of something, then I... Usually don't speak of it or at least say, you know, this is my understanding right now my understanding currently. But with this, it's not like that. I know for certain that the second kingdom, the silver chest and arms, is the Medo-Persian kingdom. The reason I know this is because it's already taken place. It already happened. We can read the book of Daniel and see that after the Babylonian kingdom, the next kingdom that came into place was the Medes and the Persians. We'll get to that in our study through the book of Daniel. After that kingdom comes the stomach and the thighs. The stomach and the thighs are made out of bronze, a less valuable metal, but a stronger one. And that represents a third kingdom. And if we follow history, first we come to the Babylonian kingdom. We found that was the head of gold in the Medo-Persian kingdom. And if we simply follow history after the Medo-Persian kingdom, we get the kingdom of the Greeks or the Grecian monarchy that was led by a man you'll probably be familiar with, but like me, you may not know a whole lot about. His name was Alexander the Great. He didn't live very long. He died probably around the age of 30. But he did rule most of the known world during his reign as a king. And so then we come to the third kingdom, which is the Greeks or the Grecian monarchy, which represents the bronze stomach as well as the bronze thighs. Verses 40 through 43. The Bible says, "...a fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and the toes, partly of a potter's fired clay, and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay." And that the toes of the feet were part iron and part fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another but will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with fired clay. So next on the list we come to the iron legs which represent strength even though it's not as valuable as bronze, silver, and gold. And those iron legs, the Bible tells us, represent a fourth kingdom that crushes and shatters all other kingdoms. This kingdom is most likely, when we follow history out again, after the Grecian monarchy, that kingdom was probably the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a very, very strong kingdom, and it did crush all the other kingdoms of the world at that particular time. But we do see in reading the text that this will be a divided kingdom which represent the feet Of the statue. The strength of iron is there, but it is mixed with clay, which is not strong. And that represents the brittle part of the kingdom. The text says that the peoples, and I'm going to say that that's referring to the peoples of the Roman Empire, the peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together. My understanding, my take on this may not be correct, but there are other commentators that believe this. I take this to mean that many people in the Roman Empire would make marriages with people of other nations and kingdoms and the marriages will lessen the strength that was initially there in the empire. The Roman Empire represented strength, but some people in that strong empire would marry people from other lesser empires and it would weaken the strength of the Roman Empire. That's how I take that text to mean and to say. It would be like trying to mix iron With clay, it doesn't happen, the text tells us. It's not good. Verses 44 through 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron. The bronze, the fired clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is certain. You notice how verse 44 says in the days of those kings, plural. Well, I like how a man by the name of John Gill interprets verse 44. He's a Bible commentator. He lived a long time ago doesn't make him right, but I like how he interprets it. I think he's probably correct. Notice it says in the days of those kings, and he takes that to mean not the Roman Empire itself, but the ten kings represented by the ten toes of the statue which were brittle. Remember, the legs were complete iron. It was the feet and thus the toes that were a mixture of the iron and the clay. And it says that in the days of those kings, plural, That the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all the kingdoms. Remember, in the dream, the stone breaks off from the mountain and it hits the feet of the statue. This, brothers and sisters, is the stone kingdom of Yahweh. That's who it is. Yahweh here is represented by the mountain. And the stone that breaks off of that mountain is Yahweh's son, Yeshua the Messiah. Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar of the stone he saw in the dream. And that, brothers and sisters, I believe, began with the first coming of the Messiah. But it will not be completely finalized until the second coming of the Messiah. And you've got a lot of people that argue over whether it's first or whether it's second. And I say, why can't we allow it to be both, the first and the second? I've listened to a lot of debates between Messianic believers and believers in just the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And a lot of times the people that don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah or that the Messiah has not come yet point to prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Messiah, son of David, because there's many Messiahs in Scripture. That just means anointed one. But Messiah, son of David, it talks about him being very militant, that he will come and he will rule with a rod of iron. He will bring peace. The lion will lay down with the lamb or the the wolf and the lamb will feed together, Isaiah says. and They say, well, none of this has happened and so uh, the man that you think is the Messiah could not have been the Messiah. And the problem with taking that interpretation by itself is this, is that it ignores the prophecies that talk about Messiah, son of David, as a suffering servant. See? Like Isaiah 53. Who shall believe the report? To whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? And it goes on to talk about the Messiah son of David as an individual person. A lot of people think by some stretch of imagination that Isaiah 53 is talking about the entire nation of Israel but it's not. Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah is including himself in the hour and he's talking about the nation of Israel and there's a he, an individual that takes the sins of the people of Israel upon himself. Yahweh makes his soul, that is the Messiah's soul, an offering for sin, that chapter says. That chapter is all about a suffering servant, not a militant Messiah. The way that we harmonize all this is we understand, as Bible believers of the complete Bible, and not just parts that we want to pick and choose, we understand that there is a first coming of the Messiah, but there are prophecies yet to be fulfilled about a second coming of the Messiah. And this stone kingdom began with the first coming of the Messiah, when the Messiah fulfilled the prophecies in the Tanakh about the suffering servant, the militant prophecies, the prophecies about the wolf and the lamb feeding together and and Yahweh coming with fire and all this, that will take place at the second coming of the Messiah. The stone will ultimately and finally crush all the kingdoms of the world. In about the middle of the book of Revelation, you can read about this. And it talks about that as the seventh trumpet sounds, which is none other than the last trumpet, it has to be. Revelation only speaks of seven trumpets. So it has to be the last trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Nobody goes anywhere till the seventh trumpet. Okay? Even though people think that they do. I say that gently to those that may hear this sermon one day. But the Bible says that as that seventh trumpet is sounded by that angel that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Yahweh and His Messiah. Psalm 2 talks about how that the rulers and the nations of the world they take counsel and they try to come up against Yahweh and His anointed. That's a prophecy of the Son. But that will all be brought to an end. Psalm 2 goes on to say that he that sits in the heavens laughs there is one sense in which yeshua is reigning right now at the father's right hand paul talks about this in 1 corinthians 15 where he's referring to the right hand prophecy of psalm 110 1 where it says yahweh speaks to adonai yahweh talks to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet and paul says in 1 corinthians 15 he speaking of yeshua must what must reign until all enemies are put under His feet. So there's a sense in which Yeshua is ruling and reigning right now in the hearts of those that believe in Him as, as their Master and their Savior. But did you know that there's a sense that He is not reigning right now? There is a sense. Revelation talks about after that seventh trumpet sounds, it says He has begun to reign. That's because there will be a culmination. There will be a finality. There won't be any of this garbage that you see out. There won't be anything as such as Sharia law. Or man-made rules. <laughs> it will be all by the laws of Almighty Yahweh. Amen. And this nation will be governed. It will be a beautiful world. Paradise. In that 1,000 year. Literal 1,000 year reign. On the earth. Of Yeshua the Messiah. Not anybody, anything about going to heaven. But heaven coming to us in some form. And then after that 1,000 years is over with. Then we see the new heavens and the new earth. Coming down out of heaven. Like a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem. Hallelujah. And we'll dwell with Yahweh here on this renewed planet. It'll be a beautiful thing. Let's look at a couple of verses in the New Testament. Turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 20. Just want to show you a couple of passages that talk about Yeshua as the stone. Luke 20, 17 through 18. This is the end of the parable of the vineyard. Here the Messiah says, But He looked at them and said... Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. And that's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and if it falls on anyone, it will grind him to powder. That should sound familiar. We read in Daniel about the stone breaking off from the mountain without hands. I want to ask you, what, does that, what do you think of? I think of the virgin birth when I read that. And I know a lot of people have never linked that together, but evidently as I speak this, Brother Arnold's thinking the same thing. I think of the virgin birth. I think of the stone coming directly from Yahweh, being begotten by the Father without the aid of a human father like Joseph. Joseph was his father on earth, a stepfather, we could say in our vernacular. But the one that conceived him was the, the Spirit of Yahweh. Luke and Matthew tell us this. So I think that's probably a reference to the virgin birth. And when that stone breaks off of that mountain, it hits the feet of that statue and it crushes that statue, Brother Dan. What did Yeshua say? If it falls on anyone, it will what? It will grind into powder. It would be like chaff that the wind drives away, the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The stone that the builders rejected. Yeshua depicts himself here as a stone that is needed in the building of a structure. And he said, the builders come along and they see me, I'm the stone, but they don't pick me up and use me. In the building. It says that stone that the builders rejected. Has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the the block or the stone. By which everything else is measured. So that everything has an equality. So that you can have a firm and equal foundation. That is level and sturdy. To build the rest of the structure. That is what the cornerstone means there. Now not only did Yeshua talk about this. And we could go over 10 verses Ten different texts right now, but I'm only going to go to one more. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 1. It says, So rid yourselves of all wickedness, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the unadulterated spiritual milk, so that you may grow by it in your salvation, since you have tasted that Yahweh is good. Coming to Him, a living stone. See here, the Messiah is a stone, but He's alive. You know, He's depicted as a stone. Rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to Yahweh. You yourselves as living stones. See, we're, we're part of that, that building too. We're human beings. We're not stones that are inanimate objects. We're alive. We breathe. We inhale. We exhale. So we're depicted as parts of the building. Okay? It says rejected by men but chosen and valuable to Yahweh. That's the end of verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5 again. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Yahweh through Yeshua the Messiah. For it stands in Scripture, Look, I lay in Zion, or I lay a stone in Zion. That I there is Yahweh the Father. The stone that He's laying is His Son. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and valuable what? Cornerstone. Not just any stone, but a cornerstone. And the one who believes in Him, notice here the personal pronoun, masculine, Him, He's already mentioned as the stone, but then He shows that the stone is a person. The one that believes in the stone, the one that believes in Him, will never be put to shame. And that is so true. If you continue to believe in the Messiah all the way to the end, you'll never be put to shame. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for the unbelieving, for all these kingdoms here represented by the colossal statue, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that trips them up. It's an honorable thing for one that believes in the stone, that believes in the Messiah. But if you don't, it's like you're walking down a path and you trip over a stone. Do you see the depiction here? This is the stone kingdom of Yahweh represented by His Son. That's what this is referring to. Now, let's go back and finish out Daniel chapter 2. we got 46 through 49. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell down, paid homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that's once again their Babylonian names, that's Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah in Hebrew, to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the king immediately, after he hears the dream and the interpretation, the king falls down. And the text says he pays homage to Daniel. And I don't think that we need to veer here and think that the king is doing something wrong. It was a very common custom even amongst righteous Hebrew people to bow down before royalty. And Yahweh even mentions in Scripture about people bowing before those that He exalts. Like King David. People would approach King David and they would bow down before Him. Your Bible may say worshipped David. And we think, well, you're only supposed to worship Yahweh. And that's true in this sense. You don't give anybody else the worship that Yahweh alone deserves. But if you come before royalty like King David or even one of the churches in the book of Revelation, people are said to come down and worship at the feet of the saints. When you come before somebody that is to be respected and you bow down in their presence, which is what the word worship literally means, to bow with your face to the ground, and you give them honor that Yahweh has given them, that's okay. That's okay. That's all right to do. It is a form of worship or homage So I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was doing anything wrong here. I'm not sure about the sacrifices though. Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to present an offering and incense to Daniel. That's kind of odd. I don't think this would be acceptable. I don't see any approved examples where you gave a sacrifice to somebody else. You offered it up towards them or gave incense to them. I see where people would come over to a person's house and they would sacrifice something to eat in respect of the visitor but This seems a little out of place what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here to Daniel. So let's keep that in mind. But then Nebuchadnezzar lifts up the God of Daniel. He lifts up Yahweh. Because he sees that through the power of Daniel's God, Daniel was able to see the dream of the king and then give the interpretation. Your God is a God of God and a Lord of kings. He's great. So I'm going to exalt you. You serve him. I'm going to lift you up. And the king promotes Daniel at this time. He was already one of the wise men, but now he gets promoted to a higher position. Hallelujah. Number one, he's ruler over the entire province of Babylon. Imagine that. The big kingdom of Babylon. He's ruler, only second to Nebuchadnezzar. Number two, he's the chief governor over all the wise men. All the wise men now have to report to Daniel. You see how Yahweh's at work here. When you do what Yahweh wants you to do, he makes ways for you. He opens doors. Daniel then asks for the king to appoint his three friends to manage the province. And Daniel himself stayed at the king's court. The king granted Daniel's request about Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. As we close out, I want to leave you with two thoughts. I know we went through a lot of details in this sermon. Hopefully it's been a blessing to you. And you can go back and do some more research in your personal study time. But I don't like to leave without making something practical, something you can take with you and apply to your life. Thought number one, when you find yourself in a situation like Daniel, held captive, threat of problems, etc., how do you act in your situation? Do you panic? Do you give up? Do you get mad at Yahweh for placing you there? I'll be the first to say that sometimes I do. When I find myself in a lot less situations than Daniel was in, sometimes I get panicky. And sometimes I get upset and I get frustrated. When what I really should do is the first thing is I should take it to Yahweh and let Him worry about it. He says in the book of Psalms to cast all of your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. For He cares for you, He loves His children. Next time you find yourself in a difficult situation like Daniel, first thing you ought to do is just hit your knees and say, Father Yahweh, I'm taking this to you. I'm casting it upon you, Father, for you care for me. That's what Daniel did. As soon as he heard about death, he went to his friends and said, let's pray and ask the God of heaven for mercy. How do you act when you get in those situations? You need to calmly continue to serve Yahweh no matter what happens to you no matter what takes place in your life. I love the song that Casting Crowns sings, Praise You in the Storm. The chorus to that song says, I will praise you in the storm and I will lift my hands for you are who you are no matter where I am. Amen? And every tear that I cry you hold in your hand and though my heart is torn I will praise you in the storm beautiful words and and I I was reminded of that song today as I was going back over my notes and I thought that's exactly what Daniel did Brother TJ that's what he did this is a bad storm I've been ripped from my family but I'm still going to praise Yahweh still going to do everything that I know to do you know that's what Yahweh requires of us just to do everything that we know to do and let him take care of the rest point number two I want to close you with is this when you're rewarded by Yahweh because you've done something that's right, Yahweh's blessed you, don't forget the people of Yahweh. I thought about this because of how Daniel didn't forget his three friends. His three friends weren't promoted. Daniel was promoted, but Daniel went to the king and said, I want to make a request that my friends, my Hebrew friends, get promoted as well. And the king granted that request. Daniel could have just forgot about them. But no, they were righteous followers of Yahweh. And Daniel didn't get pride in himself. He said, no, I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. If one of them, if Mishael could have gave the dream and the interpretation, he got promoted, I would want him to look out for me. So I'm going to look out for Mishael. Right? Sometimes I think we get so caught up. Here again, I speak to myself. We get so caught up in ourself and in the life that we live That we forget about other people. And the Bible says. If at all possible. We should do good to all men. But it says especially. Those of the household of faith. So when Yahweh blesses you. Don't forget about your brethren. And your sisters. The family of Yahweh. Be like Daniel. Regard your fellow Hebrews. Regard your fellow friends. Love your neighbor. As you love yourself. Nothing wrong with loving yourself. There is a good love for yourself. And in order to love your neighbor, you've got to have that love for yourself, right? But don't leave out your neighbor. That's the second greatest commandment in the whole Torah. We're we'll to talk about commandments. That's the second greatest one, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Matthew 7, verse 12. People think it's a New Testament thing. But Matthew 7, verse 12, before the cross, before the blow was shed, Yeshua said, Whatsoever you would that men do to you, do you likewise to them, and most people stop and they say that's the golden rule. But he goes on and says, For this is the law and the prophets. I'm not making this up. This didn't come about with Paul or Peter. This is the law and the prophets. If you want to be a follower of the law and the prophets, Isaiah 8.20, then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Every day I think when we wake up we should say, Father, whatever I would that men would do to me, let me do to them today. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Daniel did. He looked out for his friends. Let's look out for our friends. Amen? Alright. We'll get more into Daniel chapter 3 next week. Into the fiery furnace. Sometimes we think these are things we learn as a child. But I guarantee you there's things in these texts that you probably never thought about. So we'll get more into this next week. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Praise Almighty you Brother Dan, close this out, brother. Amen.